So my name is Chris Saladay. I'm class of 94, and I'm on staff with... I sound really loud right now. I'm barely talking. <laughs> but it's okay. No, I'm just... No, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, I'm class of 94. I'm on staff. I'm a campus minister here with PCF. Um, and I'm here to, to continue our series. We started a series in the, on the Holy Spirit last week, and tonight our theme is The Spirit Gives Life. As we consider that, as you think about that, I have a question for you. Who is responsible for bringing you here tonight? I think about that. You're here. Jacob laughing back there, maybe just <laughs> thinking like, uh, well, I think Conway is responsible for maybe bringing you here tonight, right? I, I, I mean, think about how you would answer that question. Who brought you here? You might say, well, I came here because I chose to be. I brought myself here tonight, and, and I think, you know, that's true. At some level, that's true, but that's not the whole truth. And you might say, well, maybe a friend brought me. Or maybe a few years ago, a friend brought me, but now I've been coming here myself since. And that would be true, too, but again, not the whole truth. Or you might say, there's a family member or a really good friend, like mom, grandfather, I don't know, some sort of mentor, teacher, who has really impacted me and my faith. Uh, my faith in God in a very large way, and I'm here in some measure because of them, their influence on my life. And again, I think you know, that would be true if that's what you would say. And, but again, that would not be the whole truth. I will say that there's one person who has brought each and every one of us here tonight. And if it were not for this one person, none of us would be here. And that person is the Holy Spirit. He is the responsible, he's the one responsible for bringing you and me here tonight. In fact, a few minutes ago, Sam prayed, you know, Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing each and every one of us here tonight. And that's true. That's a true prayer that our Heavenly Father has brought all of us here by the Spirit. So, and you could just take this a little further. Consider this, if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, were it not for the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, you would not be a Christian. And now maybe you've never thought about that before. Maybe you've never even realized that, but it's true, even if you haven't had that thought or realization. I can use myself as an example. I could say I'm a Christian because during my senior year in high school, this is June 1990, I realized, I remember I was lying in my bed one night, some of you know the story, I realized I needed a Savior, that Jesus Christ was that Savior, and so I chose that night to begin to live my life for Him. And that would be true, but that's not the whole truth. In fact, uh, I still carry, in my Bible, I still carry, because this was part of my story, my track, bib numbers, my senior year, uh, track race, the New Jersey uh, championship race, where this God used this race on that night of my life to bring me to faith. Um, I could say that I'm a Christian because of the influence of some dear friends who patiently shared their faith with me and because of the uh, just outstanding gospel-centered teaching that I received here as an undergraduate in the early 90s. And that too would be true, but that's not the whole truth. The truth is that I am a Christian because God's Holy Spirit revealed to me my desperate need for Christ, that he truly is that beautiful and holy Savior who can save me, and were it not for the work of the Spirit convicting me of this, power left entirely on my own, then I never would have believed 
I would not be following Christ. I would still be living for myself, and I would not want anything to do with God. So like I said, with our Friday nights, we're considering the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And tonight we're going to focus on his role, his unique role as the one who gives us life, spiritual life. Uh, there's an old way that the, the theologians used to describe this, is that the, the Spirit quickens. Uh, the Spirit quickens us. We're, we're spiritually dead, but he can do the miraculous and he can make us alive. Uh, or the way that it's put in Ephesians 5, we are asleep in a deep, deep sleep, but the Spirit is the one who can wake us up. Or 2 Corinthians 4, we are blind and we are in darkness, but the Spirit is the one who shines light into our darkness and enables us to see. I mean, some of the songs that we've sometimes is wonderful. I'll just, you know, Lord, in thee I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt this heart of stone. Right? Who can't melt our own hearts of stone? It has to be a work of God by the Spirit. Um, we also sang, you know, I am alive again, and your spirit is within me, because you died and you rose again. Amazing grace, I once was blind, but now I see. Do you ever stop to think about that? Who enables you to see? We can't cure ourselves of our own spiritual blindness. This is an act of God. So this is what the Holy Spirit does. This, this is the truth and the reality before us tonight, that the Holy Spirit, he gives life, he quickens, he wakes us up from our sleep, he illuminates, he shines light into our darkness, he gives us spiritual eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. And the scripture passage for us tonight, which is John 14 and John 16, two small excerpts from uh, John's gospel, this, it emphasizes this reality, this truth, so very well. And, and these are the words of Jesus, and you can listen to them as John records them in his gospel. Thank you, Rodney. So listen as I read 1 John 14, verses 16 and 17, and then John 16, verses 5 through 15. And just as context, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, really on the eve of his death, on the eve of his crucifixion, just hours away. And he says to them, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. And then later on in chapter 16, Jesus continues, But now I am going to him who sent me. So he says, I'm going back to the Father. But none of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. And unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. <coughs> I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he 
will make known to you. And all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So there you basically heard Jesus' deathbed speech to his disciples. This is his final words to to them before his death. And we just read, you know, a a snippet of what he says to them. And actually, you know, I'll give you each a homework assignment for the weekend. Go and read John, the the same gospel, chapter 13 through 17. It's it's an extended discourse. Um, And a lot of it is is like what you heard here, but he says a lot of other things. And it's a wonderful discourse. It's, It's the... It's called the upper, the upper Room Discourse because Jesus is like on the second floor having a, the Passover meal with his disciples. Um, and it just, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to read and to hear the words of Jesus. It's almost, you know, if you have a red letter Bible, it's almost entirely in red um, because they're, they're all the words of Jesus spoken to his disciples and ultimately to us. But in the passages that we have here tonight, it highlights three characteristics of the Holy Spirit that I want to bring before us tonight. Um, Number one, he is the personal presence of God with us and in us. Number two, he pursues us and graciously disturbs us to bring us back into a restored relationship with God. And then finally, number three, the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus Christ so that Jesus Christ is glorified. So, I mean, if you caught it, there's three Ps. There's presence, there's pursues, and there's points. So, first, The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God with us and in us. So look again at 16-7, Robbie, if you could go back there, where Jesus says, It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. You hear Jesus persuading his disciples that they're better off without him. I think this is one of the hardest verses to hear. Like, really? Better off without Jesus. How could anything be better if you have Jesus actually with you? You would think that the greatest privilege that you or I could have or experience would be to be with Jesus um, when he was a person on this earth. You know, to eat with him, to hear him teach, to watch him heal people, to, to witness his anger toward the religious hypocrites or to witness his tenderness toward the humble. And yes, that would absolutely be a privilege. But Jesus says there's a privilege even greater than literally being with him in person. And that's to have the personal, ongoing, unchanging presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is for your good, Jesus says, that I go away, because then the advocate will come to you. And that advocate, the spirit of truth, he will be with you and in you. I mean, do you believe this? That it is good that Jesus has returned back to the Father and that we now live in the age or the covenant of the Spirit. And Jesus, he calls the Holy Spirit advocate. Um, there are other Bible translations you know, describe uh, the Holy Spirit as advocate, as helper, as comforter, as counselor. When you hear counselor, don't think like camp counselor. Think more of like, hey, and a lawyer, somebody who will defend you. Like, and it actually comes from the Greek word parakletos. 
and the meaning is, is one who comes alongside. And it's often used in Greek references as somebody who comes alongside of you and defends you in a courtroom. And the idea is, is that Jesus, he came alongside his disciples in person, in the flesh. He walked with them, he talked to them, he encouraged them, he challenged them, he changed them. He was a paraclete. He was one who came alongside. And now, Jesus says, there is another paraclete. He is here to come alongside of us, and that is the Holy Spirit. And I like the word that Jesus uses back in John 14, if you go back there, Robbie. He says, he, the Father, will give you another advocate. I like the word that comes before advocate, another. Like if my cell phone breaks, and I go to the store and I get another cell phone, well, sure, that cell phone is distinct from my old cell phone, but it still does the same things as my old cell phone. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is another advocate. Yes, the Holy Spirit is distinct from Jesus, but he does similar things that Jesus would do if Jesus was literally here with us. The Holy Spirit is personal. Just like Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us, the Holy Spirit is God with us and in us. And let's admit it, if Jesus came and he was with us for, you know, 30 years, and then he left, and then that was it, that would have been a terrible plan. I mean, think about that. If 30 years, he's here for the short window, and then he leaves, that's it. That's a terrible plan. Because one of the most hurtful things a person can do is abandon somebody else. And we know this. Like if we hear a story of one friend abandoning or completely quitting on another, or a family member leaving their family forever, you know, that kind of abandonment, like our heart breaks when we hear that story. It's tragic, it's sad. And, and, and similarly, it would have been so strange, so unthinkable for Jesus to come to us, to live with us, to die and rise again for us, and then just disappear, and then that's it. That his presence is totally gone, and we're essentially abandoned until he comes back, totally on our own, alone. And, and Jesus, in this text, he's promising, no, that's not happening. I mean, I hope you can see God's purposeful, intentional plan for you and me. God has not abandoned us, left us alone. He has clearly demonstrated that he loves us and he wants to be with us. The Father sends the Son who takes on flesh and bones and he lives among us. And now the Son asks the Father to send another advocate, the Holy Spirit, one just like Jesus, to be with us and in us. And I, I want you to hear how emphatic and insistent Jesus is about the Spirit being truly with us and in us. Look again at 1416. It's right there. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give. It's emphatic, because the Father withholds nothing from the Son. Whatever the Son asks the Father, the Father absolutely gives. I mean, you might remember the story when Jesus was about to go to the cross and Jesus turned to his disciples and said, don't you know that if I call upon my father, he'll send 12,000 angels to rescue me and I can, not, I can just not, I can avoid the cross. 
But yet Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father, and he goes to the cross because that's God's plan. But the Father would have listened. Jesus says, God would have rescued me if I'd called upon him. The Father does not deny the Son. And so when the Son says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, then we can be absolutely certain that that has happened. My point here is, I tell you this on the authority of Jesus' words himself, his trustworthy words, words that the Father always listens to, Jesus asked the Father to send the Spirit, therefore the Spirit is absolutely here with us. And yes, I know I can't see, you can't see the Holy Spirit, we can see evidence and fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in people's lives and in the world, but I trust Jesus' words here more than my eyes. And so if you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit is with you personally and in you. He is God's personal presence with and in us. So that's the first point. The second point is that the Holy Spirit pursues, he pursues us and graciously disturbs us to bring us into a restored relationship with God. I want you to look again at chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Right there in verse 9, Jesus says the Spirit will come in order to convict people of their sin. And interestingly, the word sin there, it's singular. There's this grave, singular sin that people are guilty of. And it's the Spirit, he comes to convict them of this grave sin. And so what is that sin? And Jesus says, he explains, he says, it's unbelief. The great sin before God is to not believe in Jesus, to not believe in him. And this is the state of predicament that we're in, Jesus says. We, We don't want to believe in Jesus Christ. We don't want to believe in who he is and what he's done. We're, like, we're stubborn. We're, we're stubbornly independent. We refuse to recognize God, to give thanks to him, to humble ourselves before him. And, you know, just thinking about it this way, to try to emphasize what Jesus is saying to all of us here, imagine God's salvation as a door. It's a door that God opens, and, and he invites us to walk through. And by Jesus' death and resurrection... God flings the door open. And so now, and then there's the invitation. The door's open by Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. The door's open, and now we're invited to walk through. And now anybody who walks through the door will be made right with God and will be forgiven. And the problem, according to Jesus in John 16, is if we are left entirely to ourselves, not one of us, not one, will walk through the door. No one will believe. And Jesus says that's why the Spirit must do his work, convict us of our need to walk through that door, convict us of our sin before God, that we are in fact sinners in desperate need of forgiveness, and that Jesus is in fact that great Savior. And he is that door by which we access God's salvation. And when we come to see and believe this, Jesus says, this is a work of the Holy Spirit. He emphasizes the same thing in verse 10. He talks about the Spirit convicting us in regard to righteousness. 
just essentially that we lack righteousness, but we need it. The Spirit must convict us of this, he says. And again in verse 11, that God's judgment is coming and we all have to give an account. In the meantime, the prince of this world, Satan, evil, sin, death, you know, explicitly here, Satan, he stands condemned because Jesus is the victor. Jesus is on the winning side. He's risen and alive forevermore. We just sang, um, Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. And he's saying that it takes an act of the Spirit, a work of the Spirit, that we are now aligned with Satan and all that is condemned, and it takes an act of the Spirit to now align us with Jesus, an eternal king, with an eternal kingdom, and to no longer align ourselves with that which is passing away, that which is condemned. And Jesus says the Spirit's role is to disturb us to, to, to stir us up, to make us recognize that we need a Savior. And, and, and the Spirit is the one who now personally and intimately applies all that Jesus has done for us, applies it to our life, applies it to our heart. And you see this dynamic happen in Jesus' ministry. Right? Do you remember, like this is Luke chapter 5, where Jesus is, he's on a boat, and he's fishing um, with a bunch of the disciples. And the disciples, they, they've, they've fished all night, um, and it was Peter, and he says to Jesus, you know, we're tired, we're going in, we've caught nothing, we're exhausted, we're frustrated. And Jesus says, no, no, go back out, and as you go back out, like, you know, throw your net over here. And Peter's like, no, 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 this is, you, you, like, what do you know about fishing? You know, you're a teacher. <laughs> um, and, and Peter says, okay, but we'll do it. And he does it. And then as they catch this enormous, miraculous haul of fish, Jesus and Peter, they, they, they make this eye contact, and Peter all of a sudden just feels guilty and ashamed. Um, he, 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 what's happening is like Jesus' presence is disturbing him because he basically balked against him. Um, and the righteous and holy presence of Jesus convicted Peter of his unrighteousness and his unworthiness. But thankfully, it, it, the story doesn't stop there. After Jesus disturbs Peter in a gracious way, he then draws Peter to himself. Jesus says to him, look, Peter, don't be afraid. Get up. Because Peter says he's on his knees and he's, he's put his face down in the boat. And, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. Get up. But from now on, you won't be out there catching fish, but you'll be catching people. Now come and follow me. Peter pulls up his boat to the shore. He leaves his nets, and now he follows Jesus. And, and this, is the, this is the pattern of what you see is Jesus, he disturbs people, but always in a way to graciously bring them to the place where they recognize how much they need him. He does this with the prostitute at the well. Um, and when she comes to a place where she's disturbed and she recognizes how much she needs him, she goes and she what? She grabs a bunch of other people to tell them and bring them to Jesus and say, look, I have found the Messiah, the one that we need, our Savior. And this is what the Holy Spirit does in human hearts today. Uh, the Holy Spirit does the same thing that Jesus did when he was on the earth. The Holy Spirit can convict people of their need for Christ and he can do so in a small town in China, with a family in Brazil, and an office team in Manhattan. And the Holy Spirit can do that 
all on the same day. And you know what? I mean, given what I know about the Spirit and about Christ, I bet the Spirit did that today all over the world. Or like I said at the beginning, without the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, you, Sadie, you would not be a Christian. Or you, Matt, you would not be a Christian. If Jesus had not come, no one could be saved. But if the Holy Spirit had not come, no one would be saved. The Holy Spirit convicts me of my need for a Savior and shows me that, that, that Jesus is that Savior that I need. I once heard a commentator say, the Holy Spirit is heaven's matchmaker. I also heard him as, as described as the hound of heaven who pursues us. Uh, some of you like to read C.S. Lewis's work. C.S. Lewis was a literature professor back in the 20th century in, in England, I think at Oxford or Cambridge, at Oxford. Let me just read to you. This is his description of how the Spirit pursued and hounded him until he finally gave in. <laughs> this, is, this, is what he, this is what he writes. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen. That's a, a, a school in Oxford. Night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, capital H, God, the Holy Spirit, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had last come upon me, and so in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in. I admitted that God was God, so I knelt and I prayed. And perhaps that night, I was the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert, even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own two feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who was brought in like me, kicking struggling, resentful, darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. God's kindness is extraordinary. We reject him, but what is God's response? According to you know, this text from Jesus, or according to C.S. Lewis, what is God's response when we reject him? He doesn't give up on us. He doesn't quit in exasperation or frustration. He doesn't reject us back. That's what we do when people reject us. That's how we act. We're quick to quit on them. We walk away in anger and frustration. We reject them back. But this is not God. Through his Holy Spirit, God pursues us. He initiates with us. He disturbs us. He convicts us, all in order to seek and to save and to find us. I, I, I was thinking about how amazing that is, that God, the God of the universe would do that, would pursue us in such a way, because like, we know this. In this world, we are so amazed and impressed when we meet somebody famous you know, or powerful or influential, or we know somebody else who does. You know, when, when Danielle and I mentioned any of the friends that we have to our son, Jeremy, he's 13, he, I always his first question that he asks is like, Oh, are they famous? <laughs> no. And almost always the answer is no. Because <laughs> we just don't know many famous people. I have a really good friend, Darren Kennedy. Some of you met him um, this fall. 
Uh, he's a seminary professor in Egypt. Well, you know, people do this on social media, right? You, you, you meet somebody famous and you post it. Well, my good friend Darren, he was actually my roommate here one year. He, he met a famous uh, track athlete. Her name is Florence Griffith Joyner. And he got a picture with her. And then he posted it, and it was so funny, because in the post, he's like, hey, look at these two great track athletes, because he was a track guy like me. Look at these two great track athletes. Between the two of us, we share seven gold medals. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where his post ended. He, never, he didn't tell anybody that it was like seven and zero. <laughs> right? But that's what we do. We, like, we, we meet somebody famous or somebody, and we just we, we brag about that. We want to tell other people about that, Right? Um, one time in my time there, I, I literally bumped into Toni Morrison on Nassau Street, and I, like, I'd love to tell that story to anybody who will listen, like, oh yeah, like, I, I just bumped into her, as if, like, you know, Tony and I are like this. <laughs> right? We consider it so special and a privilege that we would know somebody, or we might meet somebody who is famous or powerful, and then, again, there's this God of the universe who totally reverses that pattern. Completely reverses it. Instead of the lowly seeking to be with the exalted, it's the great and exalted one who comes to make his home with the lowly, to be with us and to be in us, to change and to transform us, to bring us to a place where we can see the beauty and the glory of Christ, his son that he sent. The Holy Spirit pursues us and graciously disturbs us to bring us into a restored relationship with God because that is what he desires that's what he delights in when somebody turns back to him through the Spirit. And finally, third, the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus Christ so that he is glorified. Look back at 16:14. Robbie, if you go to the next slide. Jesus says, He, the Holy Spirit, will bring glory to me. The Spirit's role is to convict and disturb, but thankfully it doesn't stop there, leaving us in our guilt, with despair, without hope. But rather, the Spirit, he points to the glory of Christ. He seeks to glorify the person of Jesus Christ. And I love to see Nassau Hall lit up at night. The building looks spectacular. It's beautiful. But were it not for the floodlights, you know, the beauty would be hidden by the darkness. And others have commented about the beauty of Nassau Hall at night. But nobody, I've never heard anybody say, you know, those floodlights, those floodlights are just beautiful. <laughs> you know, it's the building is beautiful. And this gives us a good picture of how the Spirit glorifies Jesus Christ. He disturbs us with regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, just like we've talked about. But he does so to floodlight Jesus Christ. He, 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 the Spirit is the light that shines so that we can see the beauty, the goodness, the greatness, the trustworthiness the love and the saving power of Jesus Christ. That's his purpose. That's his function. That's his role, is to bring glory to Christ and that we would see that glory. And some of you might be struggling tonight thinking, okay, I'm just not sure the Spirit is at work in my life. Others seem to experience the presence of the Spirit, but I just don't see him in my life in the same way. And I would argue, if that's what you think, that your poverty of spirit, your humility, is evidence of the Spirit's work, good work in your life. You realize how much you need a Savior. You realize how much you need the Spirit. And, and the Spirit is impressing upon you how much you need, truly need, Jesus Christ. How much you need to depend on Him in all things. That's the Spirit shining a spotlight on Christ day after day for you so that you never lose sight of Him. 
I mean, Jesus started his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You could say, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, and for those who put their trust in Christ, for theirs is the spirit within them. So the Holy Spirit points us to Jesus Christ so that Jesus Christ might be glorified, and that we would keep our focus on him. So the Spirit gives life. He is God's personal presence with us and in us, God pursuing us graciously, disturbing us to bring us back into a right relationship with him, and pointing us to the glory of Christ. Just a couple thoughts, just in closing. You know, for just a response. First of all, praise God for his complete work of salvation. Do you see how the three-in-one God has worked salvation for you? Father, Son, and Spirit. It's because God is pursuing you. Because he loves you. So praise him for his good work of salvation. People want an encounter with God. You know, people desire that. But if, this, if you have trusted Christ, then you have had an encounter with God. Actually, maybe the better way to put it is God has encountered you. And now the Spirit is in you and at work in you. So praise God for his complete work of salvation. Another thing, don't ignore or silence the Spirit. If you're still figuring things out, if you're not, you wouldn't you know, describe yourself as a Christian if you're still asking lots of questions. But when those questions come, and you're disturbed by some of the things in this world or some of the things that you see in your own life, don't ignore that. You know, is this all that there is? What is life all about? How can I will myself to be the person I know I should be, but I just can't get there? I believe this is the Spirit personally talking to you, disturbing you, convicting you of your need for a Savior. Don't ignore that. Listen. Don't run to get distracted from those hard questions. But keep pursuing, keep hearing those questions. Don't ignore or silence the Spirit. And finally, one more. Pray for the Spirit to do His work in the hearts of your friends and family. We're called to share the gospel, and God can. God delights to use us as we speak up courageously for him. But the Spirit must go before us. The Spirit is the one who can open eyes. The Spirit is the one who can wake up people from their sleep. We can't. I like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, when you go and you act as an ambassador, as a speaker on behalf of God, it is as though God is making his appeal through us. And truly, because the Spirit is within us, we can speak the very words of God to somebody else. We can speak the words of grace and the words of truth that God wants that person to hear, as if Jesus were here on earth speaking to that person. But instead of Jesus, it is the Spirit at work within us speaking to your friend, speaking to your family member that you love and that you want to see, come to know the glories and the beauty of Christ. So pray that the Spirit would do his work in the hearts of your friends and family. Let's pray.
Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one God, we cannot praise you enough. Father, we praise you for planning out salvation, sending your Son. Jesus, we praise you for obeying your Father's will, taking on flesh, walking among us, dying for us, and rising again. And Spirit, we praise you, for you are the one who is with us. We are not alone. God has not abandoned us because you are here. And we praise you, Spirit, that you come to make your home with those who humble themselves before God and put their faith in Christ. We pray that you would continue to do your good work, three in one God, in each of us here tonight. And we also pray for those that we know and love, that they would come to see and know the glories of Jesus in a deeper, fuller way through the work of your Spirit and your and may we who have the Spirit, may we live by and in step with that Spirit who is at work within us. Oh, I pray that for each one here, and we pray all these things for the sake 